I want to introduce to you our first speaker, and he is a glorious man. Uh, I tell people that we are um, we are like kindred spirits because he and I share same jokes, um, same likes, and if you don't know already, many of you might know he is um, a DJ, and today he won't be DJing for us. But I just wanted to tell you that he actually had a new album out, and he didn't even tell me. So I was listening in the last two days, his new album. But it's on Spotify. It's awesome. And he told me it was a three-part series. He's probably not going to talk about that. That's why I want to just let it out, because I'm sure all of you are into EDM, just like me. That's all I do, listen to EDM. Um, EDM's my jam. And so, um, yeah, he has, he has a new part one of a three-part series of releases he's he's doing for his album but all these the, even if it's EDM his music is of course Christian and it has uh, a spirit of encouragement as all these things that he really wants to portray as a Christian so I encourage you to listen to it if you have Spotify to listen to it or um, look him up afterwards but he truly is someone that I can relate to in the sense that we are all called to be evangelists. We're all called to share the gospel. And that's why I called um, and I asked these three brothers to join us. And, you know, if Jesus is there, I call these guys because they're right there. They're right there. <laughs> and I'm so happy they said yes. Actually, that's wrong. That's, that's bad theology. But I just wanted to tell you that that's how much I love these guys. And I'm so happy that you could join us. Um, I hope that we have our ears open and our hearts open, that we are attentive but let me invite uh, our brother Benjack up here and let me pray for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to lift up our brother Ben. We thank you for all the things that you have brought him up with. Because now we are at a crossroads where we can see all the fruit that have been birthed from, Lord, what you have planted in his life. Not only that. We see that, Lord, you are continuing to stretch him, having him grow, having him become more like you, Jesus, day by day. And so we want to give you glory first and foremost. And we want to ask now that you would anoint his lips. Lord God, anoint his spirit. Have his cup overflow so that, Lord God, we, as we listen to what he has to share, what he has to say, especially as we hear his heart of love for you, that we may also be blessed and encouraged to go out and share this faith that you've given us, the love that you've blessed us with, and our own overflowing. So, Lord God, anoint your servant with the fullness of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless you. What a, what a great introduction. Thank you so much for that. Let's, uh, uh, I, I particularly enjoyed the line, EDM is my jam. Um, the, the fact that you said EDM is my jam lets me know that you don't actually listen to EDM. Um, <laughs> but that's fine. It's good. It's good. That was very encouraging. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I wanna, without, without it getting a little bit gross up in here, I, I want to repay the, the compliment, actually, because uh, I really believe that it's uh, a right and godly thing to do. Uh, in the Christian community to, to build each other up, to encourage each other, not to massage each other's egos and to uh, help each other to be arrogant or have an, uh, an over-inflated uh, sense of self, but actually to encourage each other in, in, in brotherly and sisterly love and affection. And, and, and Pastor Eugene is absolutely uh, just, uh, just such a, a special person in my life, and we've only known each other for a few years, but we are kindred spirits, and I'm always encouraged to spend time with him. So I'm so thankful to be able to come and spend time with you at this conference for the dual reason of being able to do what I love to do the most, um, which is, uh, well, two sides of the same coin, really. The thing I love to do the most is to preach the gospel, but the flip side of that coin is to be able to build the church and encourage the saints for, for doing likewise, to get out and proclaim the good news uh, of Jesus Christ. So to come and spend some time with you today and to talk through what this glorious gospel is all about and why it's so imperative 
that we get this good news into the world and a little bit of, of how we might actually go about doing that in our own context is such a privilege, but it's also a privilege to be able to come and spend time with Pastor Eugene and hang out with him and, uh, and spend a little bit more time. So thank you so much for having me here with you guys today. Um, just something interesting, and also as well, I've got to say, just as we were singing this morning, um, at the risk of coming across like the, the kind of um, pathetic English guy, I... Um, I I got a bit teary actually during the during the song worship time together this morning. I, I just as we started to sing that second song, I just felt such a discernible presence of the Lord among us, and um, I really believe that today is significant. I do. I believe that today is significant because for many of you in this room, I think this is the catalyst for you actually going and living in a different way, living in a way that will actually bring the transforming power of God's love into people's lives that are in and around you. Uh, strangers, absolutely, but I think there are people connected into your lives, uh, work colleagues, family members, uh, other people who don't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I believe that today is going to be a catalyst for, for you moving in the power of the Spirit to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just because it's a conference or because there's an English guy come to preach because we've got these wonderful gents come to talk to you. No, actually because actually... So much of evangelism, so much of evangelism is about intentionality, okay? You can't lock your way into preaching the gospel. You can't fluke it. You can't accidentally share the good news with somebody. We have to be intentional about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. The very fact that you are here on a Saturday morning, sat in that seat, says something to God. It says, hey, you know what, God? I'm willing and I'm available. And those are the only two things that he needs. He only needs you to be willing and available. Everything else he can take care of. If you're willing and available, God can use you. And so it's a beautiful thing to see you here today and for us to get stuck into uh, what we're going to be looking at a little bit. Uh, just a little bit of, <coughs> oh, by the way, I've got a bit of a cough. Um, I've had it for a few weeks now. If I, if I had coughing a little bit, I apologize. That's why I got some water. But hopefully it won't hinder me too much. And also the other hindrance that I have is that because I'm from England, I have a strange accent. Um, and we, we, we say strange words as well in England. Um, really, really strange words. Uh, and we spell aluminium the correct way as well instead of al aluminium, um, which is good to know. Um, but uh, if at any point I say something and in my English accent you don't understand what I've said or I use a word that we use in, in English English but you don't use in American English, don't worry about it. Just assume that it's deeply, profoundly spiritual and absolutely hilarious. And you'll be fine because that will be the truth of it. So uh, I would like us to spend some time today just exploring in this first session together the idea of um, what it means to preach the gospel and why we've been called to the task of preaching the gospel, exactly what the gospel is and what that might look like for us in our, in our local context. Uh, my context is I live in Manchester. It's a northwestern city in the United Kingdom and in England. And uh, most people know Manchester because of the two football teams there. Um, I don't like either of the, uh, say, sorry, I've, I've already done it, haven't I? Football teams, um, soccer. Soccer teams, my bad, my bad. Um, so the two soccer teams that are in, Ma in Manchester are very famous and very well known. And uh, so a lot of people know Manchester because of that. Manchester's an incredible city. It's got a great heritage of, of music and culture and, uh, and art. And uh, it's a really good theology stuff out of Manchester. Did you know this? This is a cool fact. The oldest piece of New Testament manuscript, papyrus, in the world is in Manchester. So if you come to Manchester at any point, like some of the guys are, Pastor Eugene's going to come over with a couple of the other guys, uh, I will take you to see the oldest fragment of New Testament manuscript in the world. It's pretty cool, right? So it's been carbon dated to within potentially about 30 years of it actually being written. That's incredible. Uh, it's uh, two fragments of John's uh, gospel on, on the flip side. You can go and see it. It's awesome. So there's lots of cool stuff that comes out of Manchester, and it's a cool place to live. But one of the reasons why I love being in Manchester is because the organization I work for is based there, and I work for an organization called the Message Trust. I've been going for 25 years. Thank you very much. I've got even more. Is this for me to throw in? If someone starts falling asleep, I can waterbomb them. This is, this is really helpful. Um, by the way, if... <coughs> If, you, um, if you're not taking notes, I would encourage you to do that. I'm not a big note taker. When I sit, I like to just sit and listen and think. But actually, the, the older that I get, the more I realize it's actually a very sensible thing to take notes because I forget stuff. Uh, so if you want to take notes and you want to get on your phone, I won't assume that you're looking on Instagram, but I will know if you are. I will know if you are. So just be taking notes, not Snapchatting and stuff. Okay. Um, so... We've been going for 25 years as an organization in Manchester, and uh, we're involved in all kinds of work. We, we, it's all about preaching the gospel. 
we work in prisons and uh, we, we go and tell uh, inmates and prisoners about the, the, the good news of Jesus and when they come out we actually help to rehouse them and provide them with employment opportunities and training and disciple and mentor them and some incredible stories of transformation of people who've committed horrendous, horrendous crimes who have been written off by society as well. You've committed that crime, that's who you are, that's your identity. And we say, no, it's not your identity. Your identity is you're a child of God. You are uh, restored and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we want to help you to live in that identity. We also work in the most deprived estates and communities in uh, the UK. We have uh, around 50 of what we call Eden teams, which is where we move uh, people, Christians, into uh, very deprived, rough neighborhoods. uh, Neighborhoods that have the highest rates of uh, violence and economic uh, instability and insecurity. Very uh, low job uh, rates and things like that. Lots of high addiction and uh, health issues and all everything that you could think of, high crime rates, all of that kind of stuff. And instead of just going to work in these communities uh, for a few hours and then go, okay, well, we've brought you some nice stuff and now we're going to go back to our nice middle class, upper class communities. No, we, we go and we live there. We buy houses and we move in and we, we, we do what Jesus himself did, which is step into the reality of the muck and the mire of people's lives, uh, incarnational ministry and getting alongside people and loving people. And it's a beautiful thing to see the transformation that's worked in the Eden communities. We have something in the UK called the Indices of Deprivation. The Indices of Deprivation is a list of around about the 33,000 most deprived neighborhoods in the UK. We started working, just to give you an example of what the Eden stuff does, we started working in one of those neighborhoods that was the bottom neighborhood. Okay, within five years of working in that neighborhood, it had moved up 11,000 places in the rankings. That's not because our guys are great social workers. It's because the gospel has the power to transform people's lives. And when you put the gospel front and center, things happen. Transformation comes. We also work in high schools. That's something we can do in the UK that I know you can't do uh, so much here. We're able to go into high schools and talk about our faith. And uh, it's very cool. I was explaining to the guys uh, just before, one of the simple things that you have to do is I can go into a high school and I can tell young people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus died for them, that they're, that they're, they're sinful, that they need to be restored, they need to be reconciled with God, that he loves them, everything that you want to tell them about the gospel. I can tell them all of those things in school, in high school, publicly, freely. I can do that. The only thing that I have to do, right, is this. I just have to say this one sentence. As a Christian, I believe. Okay? If I say that, I can say whatever I want. If I go into a high school and I say, Jesus died for you, you're a sinner, you need to accept Jesus Christ and come to life and, you know, he's the only way to salvation and blah, 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 they'd be like, no, never coming back, never, not allowed in school, never coming back. But if I go in and I say, as a Christian, I believe that Jesus died for you and that you're blah, 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 then they're like, oh, that's really interesting, that's what you believe as a Christian, thank you for sharing that with us, right? Small distinction, but it makes all the difference. And so we have uh, uh, the opportunity to go in and actually I'd use that to just make a little point for you. That's a little thing that we like to call wisdom, that's wisdom. When we actually apply some wisdom to our outreach, we can open up opportunities that would otherwise be shut down to us. And we'll circle back around to that in a little while. So we've got all sorts of stuff going on and we we put concerts on and events on. I want to show you a very quick video so you can see what this looks like. I worked on a project for a year and a half where we went and visited 55 high schools around Manchester. We saw 35,000 young people. We put five big concerts on at a big concert venue in Manchester. And this is what it looked like when we did it. We did this last February, February 2016. So this is some of our teams in high schools talking to the young people, putting mini concerts on. These are just regular high schools, regular young people in England. Every lesson includes an explanation of the Christian faith and why the bands believe what they believe and crucially, the difference that it makes to their lives. And then we took it to the concert venue. We invited every kid that we saw to come to the concert. So we saw 8,000 young people turn up to the gigs. And then we preach the gospel. I receive you, Jesus. I want you to lift your hands up on the count of three. One, two, three. All over this place, come on. 
And then our response teams come in, give them a free copy of the Bible, get them connected and signed up to a partner with a local church where they can get discipled. And we saw 2,000 young people respond to the gospel. Moments ago, giving the life to Christ. That's my boss, Andy. So there you go. That's what it looks like to do some kind of large-scale evangelistic outreach uh, and to, uh, to use creativity, to use media. Um, but, of course, the focus is not about giving the kids a great evening, a great concert. Anybody can do that. Go see Justin Bieber if they want that at the, uh, the arena venue, right? It's actually about connecting them into something that will bring them life and life in all of its fullness. In fact, not just something, but the only thing that will do that job. Because this is the mission of uh, the church. If we could flick the, the PowerPoint over, uh, that would be great, and skip it, to the, skip it past the first slide and on to the next one. That'd be wonderful. And uh, this is that advanced thing. That's what I work on now. I don't work on the higher project anymore. We've, we've formed a whole team that oversee that because we're now doing two to three of those a year, and it needs a whole team to work on it. Um, so there's two or three of those that you've just seen on the screen happening in the UK every year now for the next five years. Uh, and our hope is to preach the gospel to 2 million young people over the next five years and see 200,000 of those hopefully respond to the gospel. It should be a culture-shifting number of disciples in our high schools in the UK. It can have a massive impact uh, around uh, the United Kingdom. Um, I now work on this project called Advance, which is about developing evangelists, actually equipping evangelists to... to do the duties that an evangelist expect to do, expected to do, which is preach the gospel. And, and, and what I want to do with you is I want to journey super quick, and it is going to be super quick, so you're going to have to strap yourselves in and, and come with me on the, the roller coaster ride. I want to journey through Mark's gospel, and we're going to actually go through the entirety of Mark's gospel together uh, in six or seven minutes, hopefully. Hopefully, I'll get my timings right. And uh, I want to show you that through the story of Mark's gospel, the shortest of the four uh, gospels, that there is uh, not just uh, an imperative for evangelism, but the framework, the model, the, uh, the means, uh, the method, the mechanism, everything that we need, we find in the gospel account of Jesus's life, ministry, death, uh, and resurrection, and ultimately commission off the back of his resurrection. And it all starts with Mark chapter 1, uh, which uh, we will read together, uh, and uh, we find it here in uh, verse 16. It says this, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, this is a fantastic passage of scripture because uh, this is Jesus going to really begin his own ministry journey and equipping his little team, his band of brothers that are going to come alongside him and journey this, this stuff with him. And I often go around and, and, and when I talk to people about this passage, I, I ask them a simple question. I say, if Jesus was to come into this room right now and to talk to you, would he say the same thing to you? Would he walk up to you and say, hey, come, Follow me, and I will teach you to be a fisher of people. Hello, what is, what is your name? Jessica. Nice to meet you, Jessica. Now, Jessica, okay, if Jesus was to walk into this room right now, okay, and he was to come up to you, and he was to look at you, and he would say, hey, Jessica, uh, I mean, first of all, you'd be kind of freaked out, probably. You'd be like, well, Jesus is here. This is awesome, right? Okay? And you'd probably be worshiping and, you know, standard Jesus stuff, right? But... Um, but Jesus then looks at him and he says, hey, Jessica, come follow me. I'm going to teach you to be a fisher of people. Now, Jessica, would that make any sense to you in terms of, have you ever, have you ever fished? Are you a professional fisher person? No. no, 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 no. So if Jesus came to you and he said, come follow me and I'll teach you to be a fisher of people, would that, would that make sense to you other than the concept that you kind of understand a little bit of what the Bible's talking about? But that, would that make sense to you? Not, not really, right? No, because you're not a fisher person. So you'd be like... You want me to be a fisher of people, Jesus? I, you're going to have to explain that to me a little bit because I don't, I don't totally understand it. The thing is, right, the Bible doesn't tell us that he had to explain it to Simon and Andrew, does he? He says, he said to them, come follow me. I'll teach you to be fishers of people. And what do they do? They immediately lay their nets down 
and they go follow him and they get stuck in to the, the uh, journey with Jesus that will transform their lives and indeed will transform uh, the world. The reason why Jesus won't say, come follow me, I'll teach you to be fisher of people is because it doesn't make sense to you in your context. Actually, what Jesus would say to you is, Jessica, what, what, what are you into? Have you got a, what, do you have a job or do you have like a big hobby that you're into? What? You're a teacher, brilliant, right. So actually, I think what Jesus would probably come is, he would come along and he would say, hey, Jessica, lay down your textbooks, right? Put down your marking, and you'd be like, oh, thank goodness, right? <laughs> Whew, thank goodness for that, no more marking. Go, lay down your textbooks, put down your marking, come follow me, and I will teach you to be a teacher of the gospel, to teach people about life and life in all of its forms. Why? Because that would make sense to you. You'd be like, oh, I teach kids education. I teach them everything that they're going to need to, to thrive as, as human beings. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to teach them something else. You're, gonna teach them, you're not going to teach them how to thrive as a human being. You're going to teach them how to live because you can only live in Jesus Christ. There is no other life available. Life is only found in Jesus Christ. The reason why I stress this so much and why this is so important is because the call for us to follow Jesus and make disciples is always personal, always. God chooses you as you are. He doesn't choose you as Billy Graham. He doesn't choose you as, as any other famous preacher or, or person that you like to listen to on YouTube or podcast. Or, he, doesn't choo he chooses you as you with your character, with your skill set, with your gifting, with your personality, with your history, with your baggage, with all of the stuff that freaks you out, with your insecurities and your frailties, everything about you. He looks at you and he says, I choose you. He says, come follow me and we're going to change the world together. The call is personal and God is calling you today to get stuck into what he has. Why? Because the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the spirit. There is no other hope for the world. It doesn't exist. The only hope for the world is that the church would do what the church is here for. Shine the glory of God into the world so that people would know that there is hope, there is freedom, there is life, there is love. You don't need to live in darkness. You don't need to live in despair and brokenness anymore. There is wholeness and fulfillment. It is found in the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we'll do is we'll whistle stop tour through uh, Mark's uh, gospel. And, and I am going to go through it super, super fast. But if we shoot forward to Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Uh, we start seeing Jesus doing his ministry stuff. He started casting out demons. He started healing people. But something really interesting for our evangelism, we've already heard the call, come follow me. But Jesus straight away now models something very important for us. But when you're following me, make sure you ground your life in me. What Jesus does is he takes time to pray in a solitary place with his father to get refreshed, to get restored, to get instruction about what's ahead. The disciples catch up with Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, where have you been? There's people back in Capernaum who need you to come and heal them. They're looking, we've been looking for you. And Jesus says, no, no, we're not going back to Capernaum. Even though there's need there, don't forget that, there's need there back in Capernaum. He says, no, 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 we're not going back to Capernaum. We're going to go on to the rest of the towns and the villages throughout Galilee. We've got to, we've got to take this, this good news around there. Jesus is getting instruction and clarity of vision from his Father God. If Jesus Christ, who is God himself, needs to do that, how much more so do we need to do likewise? The holiness of our lives, the set-apart nature of us as, as followers of Jesus is essential to the task of following him and preaching the gospel. And so we need to do as Jesus does and take time to spend time in the solitary place, retreating uh, with our Father God. Um, then as we move forward through the next couple chapters, we see Jesus doing uh, uh, miracles and wonderful healings and things like that. Then we arrive in chapter 4, and Jesus starts to begin to speak in parables. And this is interesting, because a lot of people get confused about the parables. They say, ah, wasn't it wonderful that Jesus spoke in parables? Wasn't that wonderful? Because he really made it accessible to people. He told interesting stories and clever ways of saying things that would connect to the realities of people's lives so that they could really understand what he was saying. No, that's not what Jesus is doing through the parables. Jesus is doing quite the opposite. Jesus is explaining kingdom truth, gospel truth in a way that he deliberately knows some people will not understand or get. Why? Because he wants to make sure that the people who hear it are the people who are properly going to get it, who are going to live for it, who are going to capture it, and not just think, oh, that's an interesting way of putting it, but are actually going to go, oh, I hear through your clever explanation. I hear through your analogy, your metaphor. I hear through your story illustration to the truth of what you're saying, and it has profoundly changed me and impacted me. Jesus starts to speak in parables, and he gives this interesting parable that is about the kingdom of God. He said in verse 26, Mark 4, 26, 
This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters and uh, seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or get up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn. First the stalk, then the ear, then full grain in the ear. As soon as the corn is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has uh, come. Fascinating thing here. This is a great picture of evangelism. Great picture of evangelism. What do we do as workers? We go out and we spread the gospel seed. We share the good news of Jesus Christ. Then what do we have to do? Well, like the farmer, we have to leave it in the soil to do what it can only do with God's help. We can't do anything at that point. I can't make it grow once I've planted. All I can do is plant it and water it. How does it grow? Well, the, the verse says here, the farmer doesn't know how it grows, but we know how the gospel seed grows in people's lives. God springs it to life. So that's God's job. We go and spread the gospel. Then God's job is to bring it to life in people's hearts, right? And then it comes back to us again. We then have a task to do because it says then the, uh, the guy goes and he reaps, puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. It's discipleship. At that point, we then disciple those people who have received the gospel. So already very early on, Jesus is starting to tell people, this is actually how you're going to share the good news of my kingdom. You're going to spread the seed. Then you're going to let God do what God can do, bring it to life, and then you're going to get busy reaping the harvest and seeing disciples come. Then we skip forward to Mark chapter uh, uh, 4, actually a little bit further in 4. We get this great story of Jesus calming the storm. And Jesus calms the storm, and it's rocking, and the boat's going crazy, and the disciples are freaking out. And they're like, Jesus, you're asleep. Don't you care that we're going to drown, Jesus? And Jesus steps up, doesn't he? And he, and he, and he speaks to the storm, and he says, peace, be still, calm. And instantly the wind and the waves obey him. And the disciples are like, whoa, they're freaking out. They're, they're even more afraid than they were before. Because now they're looking at this Jesus guy going, well, the storm was scary, but you just told the storm to stop. And it did. How amazing and powerful are you? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus calms the storm. Interestingly, we get another storm uh, story or a calming of the storm story in the very next chapter. As Jesus, they cross the sea and Jesus meets a demon-possessed man, a demoniac. And this man has not got a storm of wind and waves above him. He's got a storm of the demonic within him. Uh, the demon identifies itself as legion. Legion could be anywhere potentially up to maybe 6,000 men, uh, which would mean that this guy potentially, potentially has thousands of demons in him. Even if it's meant more figuratively than literally, there's clearly multiple demonic activity going on in this guy's life. And this is one of my uh, absolute favorite passages in all of Scripture because this is such a powerful picture of one of the most just horrendous situations that you will find anybody in in all of Scripture. The state that the demoniac is in when Jesus meets him in Mark chapter 5 is horrendous. He's cutting himself. He's hurting himself. Let me just put that into context for you. We have the highest rates. I don't know what it's like in the U.S. at the moment, but in the U.K., we have the highest rates of self-harm amongst teenage girls that we have ever had recorded. Something like uh, one in... 10 young women now, self-harms. Unbelievable. Cutting, just like the demoniac, cutting himself, cutting himself. And what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks, just like he did to the storm with the wind and the waves. He speaks to the demon. He says, no, 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 you don't, you don't belong here. Get, get yourself out. He casts the demon into some pigs, and the pigs fall into the sea. And that's always a bit, people are a bit like, what's all that pig stuff about in that demon story? We don't have time to explore that today. But I do like to sometimes... I do. I, I could, we, we could go through it. I just don't have time to do it today. I, we, I, I do sometimes like to think, though, that maybe somebody was just like kayaking down the river that day, just having a lovely day on the river. Da, 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 da. Pigs! Just 2,000 pigs suddenly all around. Where do these pigs come from? Right? Crazy. Crazy. But I'm weird, so I think about stuff like that. Um, so uh, he calms the storm of the demoniac. He calms the storm of nature. This is a man who has authority over the spiritual realm and the natural realm. He has complete authority. This is a man who, when he speaks, brings calm to the chaos. Make no mistake about it, this world is in chaos, and it needs the shalom, the peace, the wholeness of the gospel. You know what shalom means? We talk about shalom in Christian circles, shalom, and traditionally in the Hebrew, shalom is a greeting and a parting. You can say shalom when you meet somebody and when you part from them, but shalom has such a rich meaning. It doesn't simply mean peace, as, as people say, oh, shalom, peace, peace be with you. Uh, in fact, when Jesus raises from the dead and, and comes back before his disciples and meets them in the, in, in the room, uh, he, uh, he comes before them and appears before them, and he says to them, our English Bibles translate it as, peace be with you. 
peace be with you. But of course, the Hebrew word that he would have used there would have been shalom. He would have been a greeting. Shalom. It's significant that Jesus says shalom when he comes back to the disciples because he's using that word in its fullest meaning. You know what the fullest meaning of shalom is? It's this. Nothing is broken. Nothing is missing. Everything is as it should be. Victory is accomplished. That's really what shalom means. Wholeness, well-being, balance, everything restored. So when Jesus returns post-resurrection and says to his disciples, peace be with you, actually, you know, he says, shalom, victory is accomplished. Everything is as it should be. The kingdom has been inaugurated. The full consummation is yet to come, but now we can get serious with the business of sharing this glorious good news with uh, the world. This is what Jesus brings to the storm, to the demoniac, peace, shalom. This is what we carry also in our evangelism. In fact, we can skip to the next slide here, I think, because I think I've got something about this. Augustine uh, famously said, oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We live in a very restless world. You only have to look around in your local community, turn the news on, politics, uh, violence around the world, all the different stuff that's going on. We live in a restless world. Why? Because the world has an identity crisis and the world tries to find its identity anywhere except where it will ultimately find fulfillment and peace in Jesus Christ. But it looks for it anywhere. But we will always be restless until our heart rests in God. What is this all about? It's ultimately about uh, calming the chaos as Christ himself uh, did and does. Uh, Then we skip forward to uh, chapter 6. You still with me? Still with me? Yeah, I know we're going through it quick, but I hope you're still with me. All right, good, good, good. So then we get to Mark chapter 6, and Jesus says something very interesting. Um, Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, it says, except lay hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. Sometimes it can feel like, actually, you know what, if I could travel to another country and do missions over there, winner, much easier. But doing mission in my own context, People know me here. People know that I'm just me. They're not going to take me seriously. They know all my faults and failings. I'm, I don't have any honor in my own town. If I go somewhere, I'm the new exciting evangelist guy. Wow, the evangelist has arrived to preach the good news. But in my own hometown, I'm just Ben. I can't have any gospel impact in my own place. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Jesus is making the point that it can, it can feel like a prophet is without honor in his own home context and it can be very hard sometimes to minister in your own home context but through the provision of the Holy Spirit anything is possible but it's worth bearing in mind that we need to think sometimes our own context will always be harder than than the, the context further away so then we get more healing and demonstrations of power until we arrive in Mark chapter 11 Glorious moment. We've just been celebrating this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt. We know the cult story. And they, so they go and they find the cult. And when they bring the cult to Jesus, they throw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is astounding. This is an astounding passage in the Bible. Because this is a moment when the average Jewish person in Jerusalem recognizes, not all of them of course, but the people that are gathered here, recognizes who Jesus is. You know what Hosanna means? It means the Lord saves. And they're saying that as Jesus writes in. The coming kingdom is happening. It's happening. Of course, that's how Jesus begins his own ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change direction. You're going the wrong way. My life, death, ministry, my life, ministry, death, and resurrection is about to change everything. You've got to stop going the wrong way. You've got to turn around because the kingdom is at hand. Everything's going to be different now. And he comes into Jerusalem as king, as king. And it's so important that we remember the king uh, uh, part of the gospel narrative. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then in Mark chapter 12, we get the great commandment. Hey, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? You've got to love God with everything you have. Everything you have. There's no part of you that should be left unloving towards God. Heart, mind, body, strength, soul, every, everything you have, give it to, G, give it to God in, in, in absolute love and adoration. And then, you know what you're going to do? You're going to take that capacity for love, that framework for love, that understanding of love, and you're going to share it with the world. You're going to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But you can only truly love yourself well when you love God 
first because you'll never really understand who you are until you understand who God is. It's about identity. Uh, And then the passion narrative continues and we go through the next few chapters. Beautiful, wonderful stuff. The Last Supper. Jesus is uh, wrestling over in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's an important passage for us in uh, in Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 32. We see Jesus wrestling, actually asking questions of God, saying, God, do I really need to do this? Because this is going to be hard. This is going to hurt. This is going to be painful. Do I really need to do this? But not my will be done, but yours. Complete submission. Complete submission. Having fear is not bad. Having concern and anxiety is not necessarily bad. It's actually just kind of a natural outworking of our frailty as as human beings. And, and, And sometimes I think we can resent the fact that we have to rely on God a little bit to help us through. Because it reminds us that we're not God. But Jesus doesn't resent relying on God at all. Jesus fully submits himself to God's complete authority and power in his life. He sees no shame in that whatsoever. He actually sees it as the correct path to live the perfect human life. And it changes everything. Why? Because the outworking of that conversation is that Jesus does indeed go to the cross. Because Jesus is a complete submission. Nobody could put Jesus there. Nobody could put Jesus on the cross. He chose it for himself. You know that, right? If Jesus didn't want to be on the cross, he wouldn't have been on the cross. Nobody could have killed Jesus unless he chose to die. He chose it willingly and freely. And then, of course, as he does die and as he does take his last breath in in chapter 15, uh, noon darkness came over the whole land and he shouted out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with a loud cry, he breathes his last and the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Why is that so significant? Why is the temple being torn in two so significant? Because up until that point, the, te- the temple curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The only person that could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. On one day of the year, yeah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And uh, he would crawl in on his belly and he would have a rope tied around him so that if he died whilst in the glory as presence of God in the Holy of Holies, they could pull his body out. Right? That's how serious it was to go into the Holy of Holies. And the high priest would go in there one day of the year and would offer atoning sacrifice for the entire uh, Jewish uh, people. And it's significant that that curtain that separated that Holy of Holy place off from everybody else, torn down the middle when Jesus dies. What does it mean? It means this. Worship is available to all now. Forgiveness is available to all. You don't need to stick to this old sacrificial system. Now what you can do is you can freely approach God because of what Jesus has done. And you can receive forgiveness of sins and no life in life in all of its fullness. Remarkable, wonderful. And then, of course, in chapter 16, we arrive at the conclusion of Mark's version of the story. And we realize that Jesus is risen. The stone is rolled away. When they go to find Jesus, the stone is rolled away. That's interesting, isn't it? I once heard somebody say, oh, amazing. The stone was rolled away and Jesus was able to come out. Sorry, what? No? No? No, Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away, did he? Who was the stone rolled away for? It wasn't for Jesus. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away. He could walk through walls, for goodness sake. He can zip around. He's got all magic powers. It's awesome. He's God. He can do what he wants, right? So why is the stone rolled away? Who's that for? It's for the disciples so that they can look in. Stone's rolled away so that the disciples can look in and see that he's not there. The hope of the resurrection. Jesus, come back to life. And then in Mark 16, verses, uh, verse 15, He says to his disciples, once he's reappeared to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Mark's gospel is just one, uh, you know, one of the four gospels and, and one book out of 66 that speaks to the truth and the power and the glory of who God is and what he has done and the hope that there is for the world, but also so much richness and goodness for us in there about the task of evangelism for us today. And the reason why I do that whistle-stop tour through it, I'm sure you won't have picked up everything that I said there, but the reason why I go through is because I want to encourage you that this is what the Bible is about. This is not a secondary peripheral thing. This is not like a little addition that comes into the Bible just in one chapter or two. This is the wholeness of what the Bible is about, the story of God and his relationship with his people and what that means for us living our lives in the day uh, today. Here's some interesting statistics for you. Um, Let's pop these up on the screen. Probably fallen asleep by now. No, you're still with me. Awesome. 
One in ten young people in the UK have a clinically di diagnosable mental health condition. One, uh, mental health problems are the largest burden of disease in the UK, right? 70% increase in accident and emergency, uh, ER, admittance due to self-harm injuries in 2014 over the preceding two years. And the UK has the highest rates of self-harm in Europe. Suicide is the second biggest cause of death in teenage boys in the United Kingdom. And it's the biggest killer of 20 to 30 year olds in the UK, bigger than heart disease and cancer combined. How is that possible in a nation like the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, with all of our economic power, with all of our educational opportunity, our national healthcare, wonderful thing, get free healthcare, if I get sick, I go to the doctor, I don't have to pay for it, it's all good, okay? We've got all of these things available to us, and yet we have this present in our culture and society. Why? Because we have an identity crisis. We don't know what we're created for. We don't know what we're living for. And if you don't know what you're living for, if you don't know what you're created for, you will permanently, permanently be unfulfilled. And you'll seek the next high and the next high and the next experience and the next experience. And you will drive yourself to illness, mental health. You will drive yourself to trying to regain control. I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see. Because I don't like what I see and I can't control it, I'm going to regain some control over my emotional state by cutting myself because I can control those feelings. Right? Oh, I get so depressed and, and, and anxious and down and, and, and at a loss for what my life is all about that I decide to press into the ultimate success for the enemy himself, which is to steal my life away by taking it. The greatest work of the enemy is to convince you that your life has no value. Because when you know God, you know your life does have value. It doesn't mean you might not struggle with things and you might have difficulties and challenges, because we do. Life is, life is tough. It's a challenging world that we live in. One day God will put it right, of course, and it will be perfect. and We will live in glorious perfection with him. But until such a time as that comes, we are to go as his hands and his feet into this world to say, I know that life is tough, but your life does have value. It does have purpose. It does have meaning. You know why? Because you're not an accident. So many people believe that they're accidents, cosmologically just thrown up here. Big bang, and then we, here we are. Oh, well, I guess we just have to figure out what it all means. No, nonsense. You know, the guy who proposed the Big Bang Theory was a Christian, right? Georges Lemaitre, Belgian priest, came up with the Big Bang Theory as a way of reconciling his understanding that God is the first cause of the universe, but as a scientist, because he was an astronomer as well, that there should be some cosmological evidence, and he proposed the Big Bang Theory to, uh, to uh, society at the time, so the early 20th century, and he got rejected by the scientific community, including Albert Einstein, who came out and said, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, that's not how it happened, the universe is eternal, and it didn't have a beginning, it didn't have a first cause, and now, of course, we do believe, scientifically speaking, that the Big Bang is the uh, origin of our universe, but we can't answer the question scientifically of what caused the Big Bang. Georges Lemaitre never intended for that question to be answered any other way than God, because he was looking for a way to scientifically figure out what God had done at the beginning. When you take God out of the equation, what are you left with? Confusion and chaos. When you put God back into the equation, what do you get? Peace. Shalom. It's not God of the gaps. Christians get accused of God of the gaps stuff all the time. Oh, you just believe in a God of the gaps. If you can't answer that question scientifically, if you can't figure out a natural, rational explanation for it, then you just stick God in and it makes you feel better. No, it's not that at all. It's simply something very important that I like to call truth. Truth. And the truth shall set you free. And isn't it interesting? When people put the their trust in Jesus Christ and believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, they don't just get a nice convenient solution to their scientific problems and dilemmas that they can't solve without him. What they get, by the power of his spirit, is a transformed heart. And that is the evidence that God exists. You can have all of your uh, rational, uh, logical arguments, and I don't have an issue with apologetic dialogue at all, but you can have your, 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 your rational, intelligent conversations till the cows come home. Nobody was ever argued into the kingdom of God. You know what brings people into the kingdom of God? When God himself knocks on their heart and they listen. And he stirs the heart to life. In the power of the spirit. That's what it's all about. Next uh, slide, please. is a famous quote by St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. So people say to me sometimes, they say, hey Ben, all right, you're an evangelist. Um, that's good for you. But I'm, I'm one of these Christians that just lives out my faith. I just live out my faith, and I, I, I leave it to you to kind of speak about your faith. And, and they would throw up a quote like this and be kind of encouraged by a quote like this. Yeah, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. I can live out my gospel faith, and people will see that I'm a Christian, and that will be enough. 
fantastic. You know what? No. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. If you try to do that, you're doing something that God himself does not do. God never acts without some kind of articulation and explanation of what is going on. A framework by which we can understand it. You know what we call that? We call that the word, the Bible. If we didn't have this, we would be in a lot of trouble because we wouldn't know what was going on. Be like, oh, I'm experiencing some stuff and I, I feel like the presence of something. I don't know where. This is how we understand who God is. If you never articulate, your actions will always be ambiguous. Ambiguous actions can be interpreted however you want them to be. You become no better at that point than a modern art exhibition. You ever been to a modern art gallery? Where you go in and you talk, stood there and you look at and you're looking at like a trash can with some some jam, some jelly on the side of it, and uh, and a and a I don't know a hobbit sat on top of it or something, and you're like you're looking at it and you're like oh yeah this really speaks to me I think this is all about the struggle f- for my existential identity and then someone else comes along and they say no I actually think this is actually all about uh, a feminism and then somebody else comes along and they're like no I actually think this is all about um, you know blah. <laughs> and, and then the artist comes along and the artist is like I don't even care what you make of it it's up to you to decide and, and we start to approach you know, people's actions in the same way because they're ambiguous and we decide for ourselves what they mean that's not what the Christian life is supposed to be the Christian life is supposed to be explainable the Christian life is supposed to be defendable the Christian life is supposed to be articulated so that people will know the truth of the hope that we have received so that they can receive it for themselves so actually, what it should... Re- oh, by the way, St. Francis of Assisi never said this. this is, it's a misquote. It's not found in any of his writings anyway. And it certainly doesn't match up with the rest of his theology. Uh, I think it would be more helpful if St. Francis of Assisi was quoted as saying something along these lines, even though he didn't say this either. Preach the gospel at all times. And because it is necessary, use words. It is absolutely necessary for us to use words. However, using words can be tricky. Because when we use words to preach the gospel, bad things can happen, apparently. Let's see some statistics on the screen. There was a survey done two years ago in the UK called Talking Jesus by the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the Evangelical Alliance, and a big missional movement called Hope. And these were some of the statistics that came out from that. They surveyed a lot of people. It was a very big survey. Uh, I think it took them about three years to do it. Having spoken to a practicing Christian, they know about their faith in Jesus The average person who doesn't believe in God, having spoken to practicing Christian about their faith in Jesus, 59% did not want to know more about Jesus Christ. Oh dear, that's not very good, is it? That's almost two-thirds of people who spoke to a Christian about their faith decided, yeah, I'm good, thanks, I don't want to know anymore. 42% felt glad that they did not share their Christian faith. That's almost half the people that are spoken to were happy after they'd spoken to a Christian. I'm glad that I'm not a Christian as well. What? 29% felt less close to the person. It affected their friendship. 49% not open to an experience or encounter with Jesus. 30% felt more negative towards Jesus Christ. What are you saying about Jesus? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He loves to kill kittens. Um, he, He loves to kill kittens with sticks and stones. Would you like to know him? No. I wouldn't. I love kittens. And what are we saying about Jesus Christ if 30% feel more negatively towards him? 32% felt uncomfortable when, their faith, uh, when they were having their faith shared with someone, someone else. The reality of it is we can look at statistics like this and we can panic. And we can freak out and we can think, oh, what hope do we have? If, if, if people, when they hear the gospel, are turned off by it and put off it, if it could even affect my friendships with people, surely I shouldn't be doing it. Maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't get stuck in. Here's the thing. Two big problems. First of all, okay, we have to get comfortable with the fact that the gospel is offensive. It is. The gospel is offensive. You can't package the gospel up in a nice, friendly way that is like, oh, smiles and roses. The reality of it is the gospel will offend and turn certain people off. Why? Because it says you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were created for God. You're a sinner. How you articulate and frame that, think carefully, but ultimately that's the message we've got to give. You've rebelled against God. You've rejected. You're deserving of death. You've got to give the bad news before you can give the good news. The problem is the bad news is so offensive to people that by the time you get to the good news, they're they're, they're out because they feel like you're judging them and condemning them. So we've got to think very carefully about the fact that the gospel is offensive. How can we present it in its truth and its integrity, but in a way that shows that we we love people and we're not condemning them because the preaching of the gospel should never be condemnational. Uh, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are imploring people to come into Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus. But the second problem that we have is a lot of people just don't know what the gospel is. 
So when they go to share faith, when they go to tell people about the good news, about who Jesus is, they, they, they don't know how to do it. And because they don't know how to do it, they, they make mistakes or they get nervous or they, they share it wrong. And, 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 then, and I think that's a big part of the problem as to why so many people are turned off when they hear the gospel story. It's because they don't hear it well. They don't hear it well. And if you don't hear it well, you're potentially going to get a misrepresented idea of what it is. Plus, you've got all the baggage that you're already bringing to the table. If you grew up in a, a nation with a Christian heritage like the U.S. or the U.K., very different telling people about Jesus in Japan to telling people about Jesus in America. Because there's no cultural baggage in Japan. So you have some other obstacles to overcome, but no cultural baggage about who Jesus Christ is. Over here, lots of cultural baggage to wade through. But when you understand the gospel deeply, you can figure out how to live it well, but also share it well. Because our evangelism should always be visible and verbal in perfect synergy. Visible and verbal. Einstein, here's this guy again. He said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. How well do you understand the gospel? How well do you understand the gospel? How often do you spend just reflecting upon the glorious good news, just reading your Bible, just falling in love with Jesus evermore over what he's done? Look, evangelism is not for the theologian alone. Evangelism is not for the academically minded alone. I'm not saying that you have to be some incredibly deep, wise and theologian who's got 72 different ideas about what the atonement is and penal substitutionary atonement and you know, all these other different things. No, no. But do you understand it well enough that you can live it with integrity and share it whatever context should arise? Spend time with the Father as Jesus did and get to know more about who he is and it will change your life uh, and you will move in the power of the Spirit when you share the gospel, but you'll also move in a better understanding of who he is. Uh, next slide, please. Three myths about evangelism and we're, we're coming to the end uh, now. I know I'm downloading a lot of stuff onto you, but... Uh, I want to just run through three, three sections of three things. That will make sense in a moment, because I like the number three, so why not? God is three, and so I'm doing threes as well. Um, something like that, anyway. Uh, three myths about evangelism. Myth number one is this. It's for professionals only. Evangelism, no, evangelism is for the evangelist, or for the pastor, or for the missionary. I, I can just kind of get, get on with my, my life, and I'll try to be faithful, and I'll come along, and I'll worship God. No. Evangelism is for everybody. Every believer is to do the work of an evangelist. In fact, the Great Commission is for every believer to go into the nations and make disciples. Jesus says to his followers, and I believe that this is a blanket call for every believer in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You'll receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses into Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is for everybody. Are there those who have the vocation, the industry of evangelism? Yes, there are. I do believe there are those that are called. I believe I'm one of them, actually. I believe God has called my whole life to be exclusively evangelism, which is why unless the calling on my life changes, I'll never become a church pastor because I haven't been called to be a church pastor. I've been called to go and preach the gospel and stir the church up for the targets of evangelism. doesn't mean that Eugene, because he's been called to be a church pastor, can't evangelize. He absolutely can evangelize. The primary calling on Eugene's life, which he's following faithfully, is to pastor, to, to pastor you and to do what he's supposed to do, right? So it doesn't mean that I can't be pastoral to my friend. You know, we don't want to box each other in, but we have to recognize that there are certain callings on people's lives that will shape and define their life pretty exclusively. But just because there are those among us who have been called to full time at the cost of every other pursuit, evangelism, does not mean that every other believer who does not have that same full vocational calling is not to do the task of the evangelist in their day-to-day -day existence. We're all called to it. God is saying, no, I need you to get stuck in. You, call you personally. Don't want you to be Billy Graham. I want you to be you. I want you to be you. And share your story with those people around you. It is not for professionals only. It's for absolutely every believer. Next one. A lot of people will say to me, oh, okay, fine. So you're telling me that I have to do it as well. But it's easy for you. You're, you're a pro evangelist. It's easy for you. No, it's not. It's not easy for me. It's not easy at all. I have many, many times when I preach the gospel and it doesn't go great, actually. I remember one time preaching the gospel to a uh, neo-fascist Italian man that I met. I meet lots of strange people. A neo-fascist Italian man, and he was telling me about all his neo-fascist Italian beliefs. I think the Italian thing is peripheral, but it's more than neo-fascism. And he, he was telling me about all of his beliefs and stuff, and I'm like, 
okay, cool, cool. And I'm telling them about the gospel and we're talking and we're talking. And I'm like, yes, Lord, thank you for presenting me this opportunity to share the gospel. I'm going to bring a neo-fascist. And then one day I'm going to be speaking at a conference on evangelism to a bunch of guys in New Jersey. And I'm going to tell them how he became a Christian. And then I'm going to bring him out on stage. And he's going to be like, it was me. I was the fascist. That's a terrible accent, but you get the idea. And, and you're going to be like, wow, God saves. This is amazing. But that's not what happened at the end of the conversation. He looked at me and no word of a lie. He said, it is lucky I do not have my pistol. And I was like, yes, it is. God bless. Goodbye. <laughs> See you later. Woo. Don't want to get shot today. Thank you. Um, it doesn't always go well. It doesn't always go well. But you know what? You dust yourself off and you go again. You say, okay, Lord, I can't bring him to life anyway. Only you can. I go in the power of the spirit. Here's the thing. Whether it's easy or hard is irrelevant. This is the truth of it. Not one single person in this room is able to do it. Oh. There's another part to that statement. Not one single person in this room is able to do it unless God empowers them to do it. And God empowers every single one of you. And God is delighted to use you. He is delighted to use you for his purposes. He doesn't do it reluctantly. He is delighted to do it. It's not about being easy or hard. It's about saying, God, I'm willing and I'm available. And whether I find it easy, whether I find it hard, I will trust in your strength to help me do what only you can achieve, bring someone from death into life. Next one. Third myth. I don't have the right. Oh, I'd be imposing. I'd be imposing on somebody if I did that. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. It'd be culturally insensitive. Maybe even actually if I stepped out and did it, it might even cause me some problems in my job. I might even, like someone report me to HR. We were having an interesting conversation, Greg and I, about this last night and some of the other guys, Hannah, and, and, and we were talking about this very idea. Look, let me say two things about this. First of all, you do have the right. Do you know how I know that you have the right to share the gospel with anybody that you desire to share the gospel with? Because Jesus authorizes you. You don't need permission to tell somebody about Jesus. When you think you need permission to tell somebody about Jesus, you've bought into the lie of the enemy that says the gospel is optional. It's not. The gospel is the way to salvation for every single human being. And you do not need permission to share your faith with somebody. You might want to ask for it to be polite, but if they say no, and yet you really feel prompted to share, the, share your faith with them, then I would simply say to you, okay, share it. If you know that God's telling you to share your faith, you share it. Even to the point where I would say this, and please use some spiritual discernment and some wisdom. Perhaps even talk to Pastor Eugene or the leadership team here. Think about it, mull it over. Don't make silly decisions, but do be prepared to take risks when you feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. There may well be some people in this room, hear me right, okay? There may well be some people in this room who get the leading of the Holy Spirit to speak to somebody about their faith in Jesus Christ where it puts your job on the line, puts your economic stability on the line. Would you do it? Would you do it? You felt the presence of God saying to you, see that dude over there? I'll go tell him about Jesus. Here's a word for you. So we heard the word about the, that Pastor Eugene gave about the police officer. I want you to go and give this word to this person. I've had so many times in my life where God has downloaded a word for me and said, you, you've got to go and talk to that person. And you know what my reaction is every single time God does that to me? Oh, really, Lord? Because you give me a microphone and a stage, I'll preach, I'll preach all day. Yeah, Jesus, let me tell you about the gospel. But then when I meet the stranger at the bus stop and God says, hey, Ben, this guy over here, you need to ask him how his marriage is doing. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I do, Lord. I think I'm all right. Thank you. I'm good. And he's like, no, 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 Ben, you, you need to ask him about his marriage. Okay. I've got decisions to make, haven't I? Am I going to follow the leading of the Spirit? Or am I going to walk away from that? Let me make something very clear. I don't think that guy's salvation hinges on whether or not I step out in faith. Because actually, I believe if God wants that guy in the kingdom of God, he's coming into the kingdom of God. Simple as that. But you know what does hinge on it? The fulfillment and the fullness of the life that God has for me. If I don't step out, if I make an idol of my own security, if I make an idol of my own finances, if I make an idol of my own family, oh, I can't go on that missions trip because I'll be leaving my, my family behind for a week. Really? God told you to do it? You go do it? Are we living a comfortable life or are we living a gospel life? I'm not saying it's easy, and I don't want to get too extreme with this, but I think we need to think very carefully about the kind of lives we're living in light of the gospel that God has called us to. I don't have the right. Yes, you do. 
But sometimes people thinking that you don't have the right may respond to you in not a great way, and it could have consequences for you. The question is, if God leads you to preach the gospel, will you seize upon the opportunity that he puts in front of you? Charles Spurgeon says this, and I think this helps us with these three things there. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Do we take hell seriously? Separation from God. And I don't mean just after you die. I mean now. People are living in hell now because they're separated from their creator. But we can calm the chaos and the power of the spirit. Three barriers to evangelism. I'm not going to explain all these because I don't have time. I just want to plant the seed in your mind. Uh, anti-authority. We have a very anti-authority generation. Maybe we can pick some of this up, up in the question time that we're going to have in a bit, right? Anti-authority. How do you preach the kingdom of God, which is the gospel? We've lost a bit of the kingdom stuff, but we've got to get back to that. How do you preach the kingdom of God, the sovereignty of God, in a generation that is anti-authority and skeptical of authority. That's something we need to think about. Second of all, supernaturally skeptical. How do you present God, who is supernatural, the resurrection, a supernatural event? How do you do that to a generation that is skeptical of the supernatural? They only believe in the natural and the material. So as soon as you start explaining supernatural stuff, they're like, oh no, you're weird, you're, you believe in sky fairies, I'm out, thank you very much. How do we do that? Well, a very simple answer to that one actually is, you press into the power of the supernatural to help you do it. The answer to solving the problem of a supernaturally skeptical generation is to step out in supernatural ways to reveal the truth of the supernature that you're talking about. Does that make sense? Good, because it didn't to me. Okay, uh, three, comfortably narcissistic. Uh, we have a very comfortable and a very narcissistic generation, very self-obsessed. You know the story of Narcissus? He, uh, he, he went out and he, uh, well, it's a, it's a long story, I'll tell the end of it. He, he arrives at a lake and he, he sees his own reflection. He's looking for love and he sees a reflection of himself in the lake and he falls in love with his own reflection and he spends the rest of his life just look, staring at himself in the lake because he's in love with himself and, and he ends up dying, right? So that's where the word narcissism comes from and it's this idea of, of being in love with yourself to a point where it has negative connotations. It's damaging and it's, and it's, it's painful. When you have a very narcissistic generation and we do, incredibly narcissistic. Um, three out of four college, American college students have an overly inflated self, sense of self. Not just they love themselves, they have an overly inflated sense of self. When people say, oh, they self-harm or they have one-night stands or they do all of these negative behaviors because they have a very low self-esteem. No, actually, it's quite often the opposite, actually. They have an overinflated sense of self and entitlement and worth, and it drives them to destructive patterns of behavior. We need to speak to that and say, you're not the center of the universe. God is, but it's beautiful because there's good news in that, actually. It's freeing when you realize that that's true. So we've got to get over some of these barriers, press against them, and our evangelism, I think, will benefit greatly when we can figure some of this stuff out. And finally, three encouragements for evangelism. One, that we must be intentional you can't luck your way, as I already said, to good evangelism. You've got to be intentional, right? So when we're preaching the gospel, there's something that we can have done even before we get to that point, whether it's sharing a bit of faith with our friends or whatever else. There's something that we can do first, and it's called prayer. And we pray. And we say, God, will you give me opportunities to share my faith? Will you empower me to seize upon that opportunity and be wise in how I steward it? I want to be intentional in my evangelism. Spiritual, well, that's the same thing with the prayer thing. We say, God, I need you to do what only you can do. I need you to empower me. You've said that I'll receive power when your Holy Spirit comes upon me. Okay, I take that seriously. Empower me for the task that you have for me because I, uh, I, really, want to, I really want to get stuck into this and, and, and I know that I can't do it in my own strength. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God to bring salvation to all who uh, believe. So we've got to press into the spiritual. And finally, authentic. We've got to, we've got to live. Like, I don't want you to think that you can't live the life and that the lived life can be an absolutely essential part of your evangelism. It can. And actually, when you live the life, the gospel life, it will make your explanation of the gospel have authenticity. Because when the visible and the verbal come together, then the gospel holds up. When you only live it, people don't really understand what it is. When you only speak it, they think that you're a hypocrite. When you bring the two things into synergy with each other, you're doing what Jesus himself did, which is live the life and speak the truth that will bring dead hearts to life. I run over a bit, so I need to, I need to finish. But I, I just want to finish with, with a final thought, really, which is this. I, I think there are a lot of people potentially in this room who... Um, 
are worried about evangelizing for all sorts of reasons. You're worried about evangelizing because you might get rejected, shut down. Well, you have to kind of have to just get used to that. If you're going to share the gospel, you will get shut down. Jesus himself got shut down, so why should we expect anything different, right? Then there's others of you in here who will be thinking, ah, you know, I don't think God can use me because I don't, I don't, I'm not a preacher. I'm not. A, well, you don't need to be a preacher. You need to be you, as I've already said. God wants to use you with the skills and the gifting that you have. You may be the only Bible, the only gospel, the only Jesus that somebody ever encounters. That's not to put pressure or burden on you. The burden of salvation is not yours. It's God's alone, and he's not burdened by it. But it's to say that when the opportunity arises, will you step out in faith in the hope that maybe God will use you? Because he wants to. He desires to. And you could be the change in someone's life through the power of the Spirit. But this is a really important one, and I'll finish with this one. I, I actually wonder if there's some people in this room who think that they can't evangelize because of some sin in their life. You think, oh, I messed up. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I've got some sinful. I actually wonder even if there might be some people in this room who think that they've got some sin going on in their life that God can't actually forgive them for. And that's what's holding you back from not just sharing the gospel, but living in the fullness of life. Not to be burdened by the yoke of slavery of, of yesterday, but to, to, to live free, as Paul says in, in Galatians. It's a freedom that you've been set free. And I want to speak something over you to set you free from that this morning. This is truth. Because this is also what we're going into the world, of course, to speak. And I want you to think about this very carefully. This is the heart of the gospel. If you think that there's something in your life that God can't forgive you for, and there are many, many people in the world who feel the same, you need to ask yourself this question. God has already forgiven you for the fact that you killed his son. Because it was your sin that put his son upon that cross. You killed him. I did. We all did. We killed the son of God. We put him upon that cross. It was our sin that did it. And God has forgiven you for it. It's forgiven. If God can forgive you for killing his son, why do you think that he couldn't forgive you for anything else in your life? There is nothing in your life that God can't forgive. There is no brokenness in this world that God does not have the power to heal and restore. But there is a world in chaos that does not know that truth. And there is no other way by which God has seen fit to reveal himself to the world than through the person of Jesus Christ, whose story is to be shared by the church of Jesus Christ. The only hope of the world. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you that you are glorious and good and kind. We thank you that you've chosen to make us part of what you're doing in this world today. And Lord, I pray that as we've started to get the ball rolling today on what it means to share your good news, the need that there is, the hope that there is in the gospel, that you will be encouraged, not burdened, not freaked out, not scared, but encouraged. We don't do this in our own strength. You empower us. You send us. You commission us. This is not for the professionals. This is not for the specialists. It's for every believer. Actually, this is what it means to live the Christian life. To share your glorious good news that people can have wholeness and hope instead of death and despair. Oh, what glorious good news. Empower us, we pray today. Help us in the rest of our discussions. And as we start to get more practical as well beyond this uh, session today, Help the practical elements of today to really take root in our heart that we would go out of this place with some very definitive ideas about how we can take the gospel into our own context. Give us boldness, we pray. Let us listen to your spirit and be led as you speak to us and go in the power of your spirit to make disciples of all the nations. Amen. Amen.